Hello, PodFam. Welcome to another episode of The Tea with Lauren Rachel. Today, we have a very special guest. He has a PhD in politics and international studies from the University of Cambridge. He is the director of research for Oceans Asia. He's also a candidate for the upcoming Saanich Council election. He is also the research coordinator for the BC Humanist Association and co-founder of Access BC, Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Welcome to the show, Teal. What are you drinking with us today? Thanks so much for having me on. I have, because it's election season, a very thick matcha that I love to uh, caffeinated perfection. So if my normal (laughs) speed is faster than normal, it's because I'm I'm basically drinking solid matcha paste at this point. Oh my gosh, I love matcha, love it. Glad that you stuck with the tea theme and made it extra caffeinated. (laughs) Well, and I have a backup tea, of course, because one is not enough. And I have the Lapsang uh, from uh, just up here on the island. Uh, Vancouver Island has the only tea farm in all of Canada, to my knowledge. And so, uh, yeah, West Home Tea. uh, Laura, we have to go. Okay, yeah. Oh, you must. So the coolest thing is you can actually drink tea that was grown on Vancouver Island, um, in addition to having like a range of teas from around the world. And it's, it's different. And uh, it's definitely worth trying. Okay, I'm I'm putting that one on the bucket list, because I've always wanted to go to a tea farm, especially now that I know there's one in Canada, Mm -hmm. how to support Canada. (laughs) So thank you for that little tidbit. We were on the waiting list for their first round of tea for years because it takes eight years for a tea bush to uh, fully oh, no self-actualize. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, we we showed up a couple of years back, my partner and I, and we're like, do you have any tea? They're like, no, there's a waiting list. It's like five <laughs> years from now. And uh, Okay, well, hopefully we don't have to go on a waiting list for the tea because <laughs> <laughs> we're a bit used to like on-demand tea. Yeah. That seems more reasonable. Yes. <laughs> Rachel, what are you drinking today? So I have a... Bengal spice tea. So it's a nice Ooh. herbal tea because um, I've actually had to go off the caffeine teal over the last few weeks. I do miss it. Now that you've mentioned that you have the match, I'm like, oh, maybe I should just like ignore my body's cues and be like, let's go back on the caffeine. <laughs> um, but uh, what are you having, Laura? Okay. Well, I'm the sad one to the party here. I'm drinking the remnants of a morning coffee and uh, Beautiful. water. Yeah, that's it's middle of the day for us. So, you know, I'm not quite done with the coffee. Wasn't quite ready for an herbal tea yet. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So are we all ready to crack into it? Let's get going. Yeah. Let's get going. All right. So Teal, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get involved with reproductive justice and why are you passionate about universal free access to contraception? Absolutely. Well, fantastic way to start off. So I'm, I'm a researcher that works on a range of, of fields, as we saw from my uh, sort of attenuated bio. And uh, when I was doing my PhD in England, um, my partner and I were using uh, the implant. And in England, they have completely free prescription contraception. And that was a policy that's been implemented for years um, in order to you know, address unplanned pregnancy problems. Um, and it's a great policy. And when I came back to Canada after completing my PhD, I was shocked to learn that not only was uh, the implant not available in Canada at this point because they hadn't approved it, um, but also that um, an IUD would cost about $380. So if you're, you're an impoverished student just wrapping up a PhD, newly moved to a new province, that's a lot of money. 
And so um, I'm not one to sort of take these things um, lying down. And I connected with my, my good friend, Devin Black, who was, uh, who's been active in reproductive justice for years as well. And she and I have been collaborating on political projects going back, uh, oh gosh, it's over 15 years now. And uh, we got a small group of people together around our kitchen table and decided to launch a campaign for free prescription contraception for the province of BC. And that was in 2016. We launched in 2017, and we've been advocating hard ever since then. And the campaign grew from three or four people around a kitchen table to a team of almost um, 80 volunteers spread out across the entire province and some people further beyond. And we've made some great success, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about. And we still have a bit of work ahead of us. But it's been amazing to see us go from being quite literally a Twitter account to now being a stakeholder that's invited to government consultations and um, and will be a player in moving things along for reproductive justice in BC. That's incredible. And, you know, Rachel and I can definitely relate to having to buy birth control on a non-existent university budget. Um, it was just so difficult, but it was something like, you know, this is my life. This is my health. I need to stay protected, but you know, it was still a financial burden. So I love that, um, you were, you know, right there with, with everyone else and just stepping up and saying, no, like this isn't right. There can be done a different way. I've seen it work in a different country. So we need to be modeling this in Canada. And for folks listening, right, and, and who may not know because they haven't seen the full range of different, you know, prescription contraceptions available, you know, condoms, ex internal and external are freely available in many locations. And don't get me wrong, there's still access problems there. Um, but, you know, an IUD can cost between $75 and $380. Um, the pill is maybe $20 a month, depending on what you're using, and injections, maybe $180 a year. Um, and the implant is about $350, and that's, that's gone down in the last few years. And that's a lot of money. And, and especially those costs fall disproportionately on young people, people who can get pregnant, and people in vulnerable situations um, or living precariously. And yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, that really shocks me because around the world, there's so many different countries that have programs that make prescription contraception more readily available. It just makes sense. And mm -hmm. um, it was shocking that Canada didn't have that policy. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, Laura and I are from Ontario and just speaking from our experiences, uh, I think I was 20 when this happened, where they introduced the free contraception if you're under 25 which was great because I was just like, okay, well, the first job that I was working at, I wasn't, you know, making a big amount of money. So that was a good situation for me. But going to Laura's experience, the year you turned 25, literally the year that they on were my like, birthday, yeah. <laughs> on my birthday, they're like, okay, free, free birth control yeah. <laughs> for everyone under 25. And I'm like, I really, are you yeah. serious? I'm still like, fresh out of school and like not making a lot of money. What's the difference between me and someone who's 24? Well, this mm -hmm. is, and this is the problem, of course, you know, and so we've had um, in the, over the last four budgets, we have three press releases ready. We've got the frowny face press release, which is that why don't we have free prescription contraception yet? We have the sort of, you know, straight faced um, uh, uh, press release that says, Hey, Thanks for doing it for people within a certain age range, but maybe include everybody. And then we have the press release, which is like the yay, 
progress has been made. Let's work on other um, other areas of reproductive justice. And, you know, for example, like um, Ireland just had a policy that made prescription contraception freely available for folks within an age range. Mm-hmm. And it gets you scratching your head. Like, why would you have a bottom limit to that age range? First of all, if someone mm-hmm. wants prescription contraception and is asking for it, give it to them, please. Um, yes. And then, yeah, like aging out of coverage is also ridiculous. You know, you, here in British Columbia, and I'm sure in Ontario and around Canada, we have an affordability crisis. You know, life yeah. is incredibly expensive and that doesn't change the second you turn 25 or 30 or any age. That's a problem. But then there's an equity lens too. Even if that was the case, these costs fall disproportionately on people who can get pregnant. And, um, you know, as a, as a cis man, those costs aren't falling on me um, typically. And that's not okay. So there's even, even from an equity lens, this is something that you could say is a good policy if it didn't save money and improve health outcomes and make life affordable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, 25 is a rough birthday for me because not only did I get cut from the uh, free birth control access, I also aged out of my parents' benefits plan. So, you know, (laughs) I was really left out on the line high and dry. And um, I love that you also acknowledged a man's role in the cost of of birth control because, you know, I've, I've been in a relationship for almost nine years and you know, never once did I have a partner ever, um, pay, like contribute to that cost because I was just like, well, I'm the one who takes it. So like, that's my responsibility, but really in a, in a relationship, it's just like, it, it's, it's two people. So, you know, are you seeing experiences where couples are sharing that cost burden or is that something that's still like not even talked about? So, I mean, I think increasingly we are seeing that hope. I mean, hopefully that's the case for everybody. You know, we should all be pulling our weight. And what I often say is, you know, those who benefit the most from systems of oppression need to step up and actively take a role in dismantling those systems. Mm-hmm. And you know, our, the team of Access BC is, is quite diverse. Um, we've got a large number of young people involved. We have people from all walks of life. Um, and yeah, a lot of young men have stepped up and joined the team as well. Um, you know, not as many as we'd like, of course. Uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done. You know, what I always say is we're chipping away at the roots of the patriarchy, uh, maybe at one branch, um, but there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, but I will, I will tell a fun story. Um, this was my, this was my previously my favorite moment on the campaign trail. It's, um, it's been reduced to number two. But we had a booth set up at the University of Victoria just prior to the pandemic. And um, we were you know, gathering letters to send to politicians to help our efforts to uh, fight for free prescription contraception in BC. And I had actually stepped away from the table to go lobby one of the ministers. And our volunteer was there and they bring a woman over to the table and she's writing a letter into her phone and she calls over her boyfriend and our volunteer says, hey, you should come over here and write a letter as well. And he's like, no, man, uh, contraception is a women's issue. And the woman turned and dumped him on the spot. Yes. And it was just like, amazing, you know, and so this was my favorite moment because, you know, if at any point we've not been successful in our campaign, we would have at least saved this one person another minute in a relationship with a person who didn't care, you know? (laughs) Well, we've been, um, I I think we talked about this, Laura, in our first uh, episode that we did in this series where we were finding on Reddit a lot when Roe v. Wade was overturned in the States that there was a lot of forums where people were just like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I was talking to my partner about this and, you know, they either weren't supportive or they were anti-choice, et cetera. They're like, yep, it was a seven-year relationship, but I ended it on the spot. And it's just like, you know what? Stand with your values. I admire that. 
Yeah, I think it's important to know, you know, where your partner stands on these uh, really important issues. And I, I've told the story now many times on all of our abortion episodes, but um, my neighborhood was hit with uh, a bunch of anti-abortion flyers uh, back when we first released our first episode. And my my partner and I were out for a walk and the amount of rage that overcame him over these flyers, I was just like, I am satisfied to know that <laughs> you are very pro-choice and very supportive of, of women's rights. So just kind of like a, you know, little funny situation that um, I'm just like, okay, wow. Like, you know, we, we really do need to be checking in on our partner's uh, stances on, on birth control and, uh, and abortions and, and everything. Well, and one of the things that, you know, we've been trying to do in the campaign and I've been actually really excited about on this campaign is, you know, we see ourselves taking, you know, like I said, like the, the roots of the patriarchy run deep when it comes to reproductive justice, access to prescription contraception is only one tiny bit. And I know you've had episodes exploring some of the other issues. Um, but one of the goals we've had on the campaign is taking people's sense of rage and frustration and trying to channel it into effective political outcomes. And mm-hmm. a lot of the members of our team are OBGYNs and medical students or nurse practitioners. And they, they see what's going on on the ground, you know, at the, at the coal face, as it were, they're there, they have these stories that are, that are quite heartrending, but they often don't know how to translate that into policy outcomes. And so one of the things I've been trying to do is use my privilege as someone who, who's studied political strategy of non-state actors and who, who's been doing activism and advocacy for years is to channel that information to our team and help them, you know, get this policy passed. And it's been amazing to see members of our team who have joined, who have zero political experience, who've never spoken to a city council or to a politician, giving a presentation and getting their city council to endorse our campaign or lobbying a minister um, or learning how to write a press release. And one of our hopes is um, that we take members from our team and give them the skills to go on and and fight future battles. We were hoping our campaign would be done years ago uh, because it's such a very basic and fundamentally excellent policy. Uh, but because we have so much, uh, we haven't done it yet, it gives us more time to to train our members. And then the hope would be after we're successful, all of our members can go off and work on other projects with the skills they've learned. And it's really um, a horizontal organizing model that we've tried to do um, using you know shine theory, where we're lifting everybody up and providing them with skills and training as we go, um, as opposed to sort of more hierarchically organized organizations. Uh, we're just a campaign. Uh, we mm-hmm. have PayPal account, a, you know, social media and a website. And a lot of times members of our team work independently, but I'm really excited to train people with new skills that we can go on and, and fight future battles and hopefully um, make more progress. Yes. And speaking of your uh, political experience, we kind of want to dive into the 2020 promise of the NDP provincial government and their policy to make all prescription contraceptives free in BC. Now that did not come to fruition. So what was that uh, proposed policy? Yeah. So I guess I would probably add to your question that hasn't come to fruition yet. Okay. I'll I'll give a short history of our campaign because it kind of answers your question in a sense. So we we were founded um, formally in 2017. And because a lot of members of our party were active in the BC NDP, and because BC basically has a two-party system between the, the NDP, which is sort of more center-left, and the liberals who are more center-right, um, and fluctuating along that uh, <laughs> that uh, political spectrum as uh, as time goes by, the we decided to pass a policy through the BC NDP convention. So in 2018, um, a couple of our members who are also members of the BC NDP drafted resolutions and got those passed through the BC NDP policy convention. 
that basically put this policy into the party's book. Um, now, parties have policy books that they will then dip into to write their platforms for upcoming elections. And it wasn't in the 2018 election, but the BC NDP did make a big deal of it in the 2020 election. And so in the interim, so between 2018 and 2020, there was a minority government with a cooperation agreement between the Greens and the NDP. Um, and so the policy sort of wasn't on the table at that point. Mm-hmm. But in 2020, the provincial election suddenly a free prescription contraception was an issue. And in fact, it was the issue for a couple of days. And so we had the, the Greens endorse the policy for people within a certain age range. Um, the BCNDP released their platform, which was free prescription contraception for anyone who wants it. And the Liberals uh, were forced to endorse the policy after one of their candidates had a horrible gaffe and um, equated free contraception to eugenics and then was forced to resign. Um, it was oh. sort of the most, mm-hmm. you know, f- talk about falling on your sword, um, mm, the most socially, yeah. one mm-hmm. of the most socially conservative members of the then BC Liberal Caucus, Lori Throne's, um, decided to make some inopportune and inappropriate comments around, you know, conflating prescription contraception to eugenics um, and then was forced to resign. Ironically, we had previously talked to him about this when we were lobbying him directly and corrected him and tried to explain why this was not the case and why times have changed and, you know, there's some archaic, you know, beliefs and Mm -hmm. things like that, Um, but that didn't clearly resonate. Um, And the Liberals lost that seat. And we were the news cycle for a couple of days. It was surreal. I was talking to my, my co-founder, Devin, and we were doing like five or six interviews each. I was like, are we the news cycle? Yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> and so, so basically, after that election, the BCNDP committed to making prescription contraception free. And we were basically waiting. And mm-hmm. I've described our campaign strategy at the moment as that gif of Judge Judy tapping her watch impatiently. That's basically where we're at. Um, yeah. The policy is fantastic. It's going to save the government millions of dollars a year. Um, and I can talk a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but mm-hmm. basically, we've had a couple budgets go past where the policy was not included. Okay. So where we're at at the moment is our campaign is um, trying to keep the pressure up on the government so that the next budget does include free prescription contraception. So we're in this mm-hmm. kind of waiting period. But we're so like I said, we're trying to you know keep the government focused on the policy, but at the same time avoiding you know being so aggressive that we turn them off working on the policy. As well. <laughs> Um, but also we're trying to, at the moment, capitalize on um, the whole Roe v. Wade situation. Yeah. Previously, reproductive justice was low on the radar. A lot of people thought that there weren't as many issues in Canada as we thought. Turns out there are, and most people have known, many people have known about them for years. Mm-hmm. And so we've released a reproductive justice manifesto, which includes a wide range of other things we'd like to see done. And the hope is that we can use sort of the devastating news from Roe v. Wade to galvanize politicians in British Columbia and Canada to actually step up for reproductive justice. You know, we had the minister, uh, one of our um, members of the Legislative Assembly here saying that she would fight to the death to defend someone's right to an abortion. But meanwhile, someone who lives in Haida Gwaii has to travel further than someone living in Texas to get an abortion, thousand kilometers to get access. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, you know, that commitment is in words only. So we're trying to channel some of that energy into tangible outcomes. And we're hoping that one of those outcomes will be free contraception. For sure. Yeah, it's one of those things where that Roe v. Wade becoming overturned was a really devastating moment in world history, basically. But it has created such a great opportunity to really work on the policies in our own country. And to also take steps to reduce the stigma and talk about these things more and make it a normalized conversation. 
because, you know, we shouldn't have to be hush hush about these things. Like if we're having this conversation in public, we shouldn't be like, oh, you know, like whispering about whispering the word abortion or whispering about free contraception. Like they're both medical related. We should just be able to talk about it. And in your view, what do you think the benefits of a free contraceptive policy would be for BC and everywhere? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get into it. Absolutely. It's one of the strange things advocating for this policy is very often in you know, progressive policies, we find ourselves asking for money without you know, a clear, we want people to spend money on things. And yeah. this is a revenue positive policy. So one of the first things we talked to government about is the fact that um, research from Options for Sexual Health, a study from 2010 that folks can find on our website, uh, found that if BC made prescription contraception freely available to all who want it, it would save them $95 million a year. Wow. wow. That's not a small number either, especially no. on a provincial level like that. And you just think of the ripple effect if every province implements this, like the, the savings at a federal level would be like in the billions of dollars, especially long term. Yeah, there was a 2015 study um, in Canadian Med- the Canadian Medical Association Journal that estimated that the cost of delivering free prescription contraception for all Canada would be about 157 million, um, but the savings would be 320 million. Um, but these are like the direct medical savings, and as you said, like you can't quantify those knock-on effects. And, and people often ask, well, why? Where are these savings coming from, right? And you know, part of it is because unplanned pregnancies are at a higher risk to complications to both mother and infant, and that's expensive. Um, preg- uh, abortions cost more than an IUD, right? Yeah. So, and an IUD lasts for potentially 10 years and an abortion is a one-time thing. So those costs add up as well. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also social supports as well, right? If you can't afford prescription contraception, you may also struggle to raise a child. And then those costs are going to fall on, um, you know, on the state as well. And this is sort of why the options for sexual health studies found that for every dollar you spend on contraceptive support, um, that will save about ninety dollars um, on social supports. Wow! So, and th- these are you know the the indirect savings, right? Mm-hmm. And those, as you said, have a knock on effect um, across society. Uh, but then there's other benefits as well, right? You've got equity and equality, right? Mm-hmm. Again, back to our original point of these costs fall disproportionately on women and people who can get pregnant, and that's just not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have life being making life more affordable. Like we had that affordability crisis and. Yeah, $20 a month for the pill or $320 a month for an IUD may not be a lot for many people, but it is a lot for other people. And we have all these costs that are compounding. So suddenly, you know, back to that time when we were tabling at UVic, we actually had someone walk up to us and show us her credit card statement with her IUD on it and be like, I can't afford to pay this, but I needed this. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. Um, And so, yeah, really, you, you have, you know, promoting positive health outcomes, making life more equitable and, and increasing equality, um, making life more affordable and saving the government money. So these are sort mm-hmm. of the reasons why free prescription contraception is such a fantastic policy and one that we should have implemented yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Rachel and I, we're kind of from the, the finance world. So uh, when you think about just the economy in general, you know, you have a, a workforce that is able to be more educated and, continue working and reach higher goals as well. So this just, you know, uh, in turn raises the country's GDP and just has so many ripple effects that way. 
as well, because you don't have, um, you know, especially young people and vulnerable people having to step out of the workforce, you know, then, uh, you know, that has an effect on their overall income, which is going to reduce their, their ability to buy homes and uh, be investors and be a participating member, essentially, of, of the economy. And interrupting education as well, right? Yeah, interrupting um, education, too, you know, right? It, it's, it's all linked. And yeah. you know, young people and students, as you mentioned, might be covered under their parents' plan. Mm-hmm. And this is another aspect. There's a safety element to it as well. You know, mm-hmm. some parents are totally fine with their, you know, their, their kids being on contraception and, and covering them under their plan. Mm-hmm. But there's a privacy issue where that's not always the case. And in many cases, the um, you know, a young person doesn't want their parents to know they're on contraception. So they have to choose between giving up their privacy and potentially their safety or housing and, and contraception or, or paying for it out of pocket. And so that's another angle that is often not considered that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, physical safety and housing. Uh, unfortunately, as you mentioned, stigma and taboo are, are still a thing around sex and, and reproductive health and contraception and abortion. And um, in some, you know, some people's you know, families, that's a very serious thing. And so it can imperil your safety as well. Yeah. And uh, this is something we kind of touched on in our last episode with Dr. Ruth about, um, you know, people having the right to privacy, especially medical privacy. And uh, something she had mentioned was that, okay, even though, um, you know, a, a, a young person was able to put birth control through on their parents' plan, and maybe it doesn't have the title of it. When that parent, you know, sees their their statement of the insurance, they can just look up the policy number or the, um, so, sorry, what is it, Rachel, the prescription ID of what yeah, that medication is. They can look at, they can look up what the like, drug ID is and figure yeah, out sorry, what the drug ID is on. Yeah. And pretty quickly that privacy is just blown out of the water. And you don't know what those repercussions are for, for some people. There's one thing I do want to mention, because it's kind mm-hmm. of um, adjacent to what we're talking about, and that's sort of the compounding nature of barriers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we focused our campaign exclusively on cost. Um, right. It's been identified as one of the major barriers uh, preventing people from accessing prescription contraception or the major barrier by, uh, you know, contraception providers. But there's other barriers and these compound. And so if you can imagine, like you mentioned with work, right? So let's say you're trying to access prescription contraception. You need to get a prescription. That means you need to get to a clinic. Now that might be very easy if you're living in an urban center, you hop on a bus, you bike over to the local clinic. But if you're living in a remote or rural community, suddenly that's travel. And that can be many kilometers, hundreds of kilometers in some situations. So you've got travel. Um, here in, uh, in British Columbia, Northern BC, that may involve travel without access to public transit. So you might be hitchhiking or borrowing a car and that puts you in a very dangerous situation, especially mm-hmm. in Northern BC. And then you've got time off work or time off school, uh, which is obviously lost income or lost time in the classroom. But then if people have existing children, there's childcare costs. Um, so let's say you, know, you, you, you take a cab to a clinic, you get your prescription, you still need to get the prescription filled. That's another mm-hmm. trap trip. That's more time off work. Um, and then you need to get, say, if it's, if it's an IUD, you need to get it inserted. Um, and yeah. that's another day. And imagine taking public transit or um, hitchhiking after getting an IUD inserted. I've never had one inserted. My understanding is it's not a pleasant experience and that there's lots of conversations about pain management that we have to have um, and that you may have to have in another podcast. Um, with, <laughs> well, with I mean, the- I can speak from, I can give the experience to this that uh, I was not in great shape afterwards. And I'm pretty sure I cried a little bit on the way home. So I had my mom drive me home. I don't think I would have enjoyed being on the public bus, Mm-mm. especially one that's like 
four plus hours. You know, I was lucky that it was a 30 minute drive. And this, this becomes another barrier, right? Imagine if you, if you don't have that kind of ride and you're unwilling to take a bus, which for very obvious reasons, suddenly that's another barrier. So we've been trying to talk about um, removing other barriers that compound, um, but hyper-focused on cost, because once we get that out of the way, we can start dealing with things like telemedicine mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a mail order con- uh, con- prescriptions and uh, travel vouchers and things like that. Um, but it's it's just, it's always worth noting because these, these costs um, compound and they become greater for people in particularly vulnerable situations. You know, a $50 cab ride home from the clinic might be fine for some folks who can't get a lift or aren't comfortable doing so, but that's a lot of money for many people. And Mm -hmm. suddenly these make it even harder and put contraception further out of reach to the people who may want to have, you know, want to access it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, would you say there's been any specific reasons why the policy hasn't been put in place or is it just kind of a sit and wait for it to happen situation? That's a really good question. And we've been trying to puzzle this ourselves because if we could identify what that barrier was or what that delay was, we could try to address it through our advocacy work. Uh, Part of why I think it was delayed initially between 2018 and 2020 was because there was a cooperation agreement, a supply agreement rather, between the BCNDP and the Greens, and it was not the time to bring up a new policy that was not included in that. Um, But subsequent to the 2020 election, when the BCNDP has a majority government, I think part of the delay is the pandemic. You know, we've mm-hmm. been when it comes to public health and expenditures, there has been a lot of chaos and big costs coming out of the pandemic, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've also seen the pandemic exacerbating barriers to accessing prescription contraception. You know, you don't want to go sit in the waiting room of a clinic uh, for two and a half hours if you've got concerns around the pandemic, or taking public transit is more difficult, or you know, things along those lines. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the motivating factors why we should have better access to contraception. But I think the pandemic was part of it. Um, and then politics is probably playing a role um, where we often see sexual and reproductive health issues um, being you know, not as you know, prioritized as other issues. Um, but also, this is a very popular policy, right? We haven't mm-hmm. we've yet to encounter an argument against free prescription contraception that isn't bathed in misogyny. And yeah. so you find as most you know, reasonable thinking people, whether it's the economic arguments or the equity arguments or the health outcomes, will get behind this policy. And so I think maybe there's some politics at play where there's, you know, government might be waiting to release the policy when it needs, you know, a, a bit of a boost. Um, but we've been, we've been particularly adamant that this should be done right away because mm-hmm. you don't start seeing savings. You don't start seeing positive health outcomes until you implement the policy. And also people are facing barriers to accessing prescription contraception now and, yeah. and yesterday and tomorrow. <laughs> um, and so we should be implementing it right away. Yeah. So then is that kind of access BC's role just to keep this at the forefront and, uh, you know, top of mind with all the politicians? Exactly. Yeah. So what we've done throughout our campaign, and I talked to you a bit about the outline of the campaign, the timeline, but not about what we've been doing for advocacy. So Mm -hmm. we've had about four major areas of advocacy. Um, The first has been our letter writing campaigns. We've launched different waves of letter writing campaigns, an old school traditional feminist approach, um, sending people, you know, sending letters to people's MLAs or the premier or the minister of health um, and different combinations, trying to, you know, raise the profile of the issue. We've done direct lobbying where we sat down with politicians, front, uh, you know, ministers and backbenchers and members of the opposition um, and 
talked to them about the issue and educated them about some of the, you know, the barriers that people are facing. And we've also participated in, say, government um, consultations. Um, we've drafted up uh, presentations to the annual budget consultation committee, and we've you know, formally participated in some of the government's consultations on sexual and reproductive health issues in BC. Um, and that, those have been sort of um, two, two of the approaches, but we've also been doing other work. So, you know, one of our things that turned out to be very successful was mobilizing municipal governments to, um, to support our campaign. And so I'm very excited to have you know, over 30 municipalities across British Columbia that have passed motions endorsing our, our policy. And it's a really good ask, first of all, because it doesn't cost the municipality any money, but it does help put additional pressure on the provincial government. And it's a big win. So our local activists can you know, cut their teeth on a campaign. They can see the outcome of their hard work. They can get the news stories that raise awareness and um, of the issue. And that's a really successful way of you know, building up our, our morale as uh, we're slowly chipping away at uh, what's turned out to be a very long campaign. And then we've been mobilizing allies. So we have a host of uh, civil society organizations ranging from major unions to small doula collectives. Um, that have you know, similarly written letters to the government and passed motions and adopted policies to um, endorse our campaign. So it's been sort of a multifaceted approach. Um, and we're obviously always doing advocacy and outreach like I'm doing right now. We're always talking to the media whenever we can um, and, and trying to you know, get the, get the uh, information out there. But it's been multi-pronged. And most of our work is done, like as I mentioned earlier, by our team members spread out, spread out across the province, uh, working independently and um, sort of chipping away at different angles. That's amazing. You guys have a lot going on and, you know, we're going to talk about it a bit at the end, but just like, I feel like everything you just said, I'm like, we're not from BC, but we need to get involved in this. <laughs> yes, I know. I was just like, how can I help? <laughs> I was just, I'm like, Laura, do we need to move to Vancouver? No. I think, so. have, I think we will have to talk offline about that. Um, well, we do, we, I should say, I mean, I know we want yeah. to talk about this later on, but it's worth noting, you know, our campaign has grown beyond the, the borders of British Columbia. And mm -hmm. this might be a good time to talk about it because it's, it's very exciting. So we started, as I said, we started off as like, with like two or three people around a kitchen table with a Twitter account. And now we've helped set up and support sister campaigns. There's one in Ontario. We have mm -hmm. one in Manitoba. Uh, we've had motions in the Yukon and New, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia that politicians have, have put forward. Um, there were some rumblings. One of the parties in Quebec was proposing free prescription contraception. So we've seen a movement growing across the country, which is just kind of like mind boggling because we yeah. really are like we're like very grassroots and it's amazing to see other groups set up across the country and if there's listeners in other provinces that also want to set up campaigns get in touch we'll help you out there's no reason to reinvent the wheel like we've mm -hmm. got five years of campaign experience so we've written statements and press releases we've got you know all the research background research is done we've got uh, knowledge of software that you can use for letter writing campaigns and social media strategies and messaging guides and lobbying guides. And so one of the goals that we have is helping support campaigns across the country and further afield for that matter um, in doing advocacy on this one. The, the really great thing about free prescription contraception is it's a really good entry into reproductive justice advocacy, yeah. um, principally because you aren't coming up against a lot of the sort of ingrained you know, mm -hmm. conditions that have come up. Um, this is one of those ones where it does, should transect a lot of the political spectrum, apart from the, the deeply misogynistic people that just hate women. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, you can appeal to people who are fiscally conservative um, or, you know, 
socially progressive, et cetera. Yeah. And that, that means you can have a more successful efficacy uh, campaign as opposed to say coming up against more entrenched positions around things like abortion. Um, and so that's been really interesting to see. And it's exciting to have that kind of growth. And it's part of our, our, our goal um, in the sense, because obviously people are facing access to uh, barriers to accessing prescription contraception across the country and the world. And so it doesn't just stop at the Rocky Mountains as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you said that this was a grassroots, like in every sense of, of that word, because um, a lot of what we've been talking about in all these episodes, a common theme is, you know, how can the average person get involved and feel like they're making a difference? So I love that this started as just three people around a kitchen table and a Twitter account, because it just shows, you know, with passion and uh, some drive, this can become huge and it can actually change lives. Cause that's what you guys are doing. You're changing people's lives and making our country better, which is, you know, what, what every Canadian should be striving to do, right? Like just to have a little bit of, of input so we can all be lifted up together. So I absolutely love that. And, um, we're definitely going to put that all down in the show notes of how people mm-hmm. can contact you and, and get involved. Um, but like you said, you know, if, if some, one of our listeners is from a different province and they want to get started and make a change, you know, this is the opportunity right here, you know, the, the roadmaps there, it just needs to be implemented by someone. So I absolutely love that. And you can get these little victories too. So a Mm -hmm. a big example, like a small town in the interior, uh, in the Rocky mountains here in BC, uh, we got them to adopt our, our motion and pass a, pass a resolution that would have them write a letter to the provincial government asking them to make prescription contraception free. And we were chatting with one of the counselors and she's like, well, what else can we do to actually like have a tangible impact? And we're like, well, do you have free menstrual products in your washrooms? She's like, no, we're like, great, do that too. Mm-hmm. So they passed two resolutions yeah. and now the, the, the one town washroom that's only open on Sunday market days has free <laughs> menstrual products. And it was, it. That's it was amazing. Great. Well, it was hilarious too because it was like it was, we watched the the proceedings and someone's like, "Well, how much is this going to cost us?" You know, this stodgy argument. And someone's like, "Well, we have one washroom and it's open on Sundays, so you know." <laughs> what are the odds? How many people are going to go through this every week? <laughs> I think it was like they allocated like a thousand bucks, and it's like that's probably going to be enough. Uh, but it was yeah. these kind of you know you can do building block campaigns. You know, one of the one of the challenges that I see, you know, as someone who does environmental advocacy a lot, is you have these big problems. Like climate change is a big scary problem. And mm-hmm. what's going on with our ocean is horrifying. Like it's mm-hmm. it, and that becomes very depressing and it's not motivating. And so when we have these big issues, I like to break them down to small little actions that get you tangible outcomes that you can get victories on and then build for future victories. Um, so when it comes to things like, you know, climate change, uh, what I'm working on right now in my municipal campaign is road safety. Because I want people biking yes. and walking, but it's not mm-hmm. cool to do that if it's mm-hmm. not safe. Um, yes. And so when it comes to things like the patriarchy and misogyny, <laughs> that's a big issue. But you can mm-hmm. break it down to little pieces and it becomes much more manageable. And mm-hmm. critically, like you get morale when you get these little wins. Like there's something really cool about like, you know, reproductive justice advocates, you know, get the town of Lumbee to support this policy or, you know, that, that is very motivating and it helps build the movement and it helps with morale and it helps bring more people in and achieve other outcomes. Yeah. And I, I kind of love, it's like a little stepping stone, right? You know, like let's mm-hmm. get free menstrual products. Okay. Now let's get free birth control. Okay. Now let's get ex- access to 
abortions and now like family support, right? Like it's just this little winds of stepping stones. And um, like you were saying about the excitement, I remember reading just yesterday that a local school is now supplying all their bathrooms with pads and tampons. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't even, I don't even go to this school, but I'm like excited for them, you know? <laughs> well, and you can use those, even, even someone else's success you can use, right? So for example, here in British Columbia, there are free menstrual products in school washrooms. And now I can use that as an example when I'm trying to advocate for free menstrual products in municipal buildings. Yes. And then other you know groups can use that. So these things all compound and they don't necessarily have to be the same people doing the advocacy. I know our, uh, the folks that worked so hard to get uh, you know taxes taken off menstrual products were pretty burnt out after that effort. Yeah. It's like, thank you for your service. You've done a great, we can take it from here on one other aspect and <laughs> well-earned break. Nice. Nice. Well, now, um, there are some current programs that BC does have around access to free or affordable contraceptives, um, but they also have a lot of barriers as well. Can you kind of elaborate on some of these programs? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that often comes up, you know, whenever we write politicians, they'll send us a response and it'll be something like, well, BC does have coverage for some folks. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, one of the biggest ones is our fair pharmacare uh, program, which if you make below a certain income, you do start getting access to subsidized or free prescriptions. And that includes for prescription contraception. But in order to get your prescription contraception covered 100 percent, you have to make such a low income that it's almost impossible to live in any of the you know, major metropolitan areas in BC. You know, BC is one of the most expensive places to live in the country and Vancouver and Victoria are amongst the highest and most expensive places. And so, you know, if you have these, you know, these income cutoffs, I mean, the fact that someone has to, I think the number was like 12,500 or 17,500, like it's not enough money to pay the average or even below average rent in that mm-hmm. university. No let alone afford food. And so we see this hodgepodge of programs, but the programs themselves create barriers. So if there is a benefits, uh, like an, an income test or a means test in order to receive free prescription contraception, some people will fail that test because they're making 50 bucks more. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will fail that test because their parents make more money. But again, it comes back to that privacy issue we discussed. But then the act of having to apply for this funding and this coverage is in and of itself a barrier. And so we see that kind of the, the, the slogan of it's expensive to be poor um, being like exemplified here, right? In order to apply for fair pharmacare, you have to take time to print out a form and fill out that form and get information and then submit that form and wait, or you purchase your medication and then get reimbursed, which is another barrier. All of these things add up. And then again, they fall disproportionately on people who don't have the time to spend an afternoon filling out a complicated government form or don't have the experience filling out a government form. Then there's also additional costs insofar as someone has to process that form and that costs the government money and someone has to send a letter back and forth to this person. And so these bureaucratic costs also add up. And this is again, why it's easier and and so much more efficient to say free prescription contraception for anyone who wants it. Um, And then all you have to do is work out some of the details around um, you know, the, the pharmacies and things like that, but it's, it's so much easier because all these applications, paperwork are additional barriers. Yeah. And just as soon as you were saying that with, um, just getting paperwork and the person who maybe meets that income threshold, what are the chances they have a computer, let alone a printer? Right. Like, yeah. Or you're mm-hmm. taking time off to go to the library or you, you yeah. do have a computer, but you're taking time. It's just, it all mm-hmm. adds up. Even an hour form is, time that someone could be spending doing anything else quite literally yeah exactly you know it, they just don't make it easy and it's kind of seems like they do that on purpose for 
whatever governmental <laughs> reasons that they may have. But, um, you know, like you just said, it just needs to be a blanket policy of just free contraceptive for all, you know, like, don't worry about the forms, just if you need it here, that's, that's how our society should, should be when it comes to, to birth control access. And a lot of other things too, like when it comes to things like people asking for help, like mental health yeah. or trouble with addictions and substance abuse, they should mm-hmm. be the policy. If you ask once you get help, because often if someone has to ask over and over again, that first asking that first point of asking is difficult, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And making the person do that multiple times and have to do a lot of self-advocacy when they're in a particularly vulnerable situation or experiencing hardships or, or traumas um, is again, absolutely unnecessary. And mm-hmm. it reduces the chance of that person actually getting the help that they need. Yeah. And when you're in that vulnerable position, the chance of being rejected from those programs are equally as traumatizing that it's just like, you're already in a vulnerable state. And then the response you're getting back puts you in an even more vulnerable state. I'm going to move into our next question because (laughs) yeah. Um, So you're experienced with writing policy at all levels of government. How would you say this process differs across municipal, provincial, and federal levels? And where would you focus majority of your efforts in Canada for reproductive justice purposes? It's a a good question. And I think one of the one of the things I would probably say is, you know, it comes back to our, our conversation. I'll, I'll answer the second part first. And it comes back to our conversation of, you know, breaking big issues down to smaller chunks. And there's a lot of groups that are national or provincial that are doing some important advocacy. And I think you've talked to some of those folks as well. Mm-hmm. And so if folks are looking to do advocacy without, you know, already just getting involved in these pre-existing groups, starting at the local level can have a huge impact. So like we were talking about, you know, getting your municipality to provide condoms in their facilities or free menstrual products is a lower barrier form of advocacy that has a huge impact on people's lives, um, but it's very accessible. It's not, it shouldn't be too hard to convince municipalities to do these things. We have free toilet paper and washrooms after all. And uh, there's a lot of sources of discount and, and, and you know, cheaper, um, you know, condoms. And so that, that would be something I would usually recommend is take this larger issue and break it down. The second one is, you know, as I said, as you said, I have done policy at all these different levels. Um, I'm, I've learned patience throughout this campaign. We thought we'd be done years ago. And you know, getting the government to spend uh, about $60 million on providing free prescription contraception up front is a big ask. Um, it's not that big of an ask, honestly, given how much we spend on other things, but it's an ask. And so, you know, being patient and persistent is important because I know, you know, one of the challenges we had um, is we've had members of our team that during the course of the campaign have had children who are now entering school. And so, you know, we've had people come and go from the campaign. They've graduated from university, gone to grad school. And so, you know, maintaining a sustainable campaign is challenging, but you need to have that consistency because it takes years to build up, like, you know, the profile and the experience and in order to be an effective advocate and get your foot in the door of some of these, you know, these consultations and to get to know what you're doing and just understand how the system works. Um, but I think, you know, that doesn't mean that we should also do advocacy at other levels. So, you know, one of the things that um, we've put out, and I'm sure you'll share a link of this, um, by we, I mean a group of, of advocates from Access BC to the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, BC Humanists, um, Options for Sexual Health, and a bunch of other groups um, have released a reproductive justice manifesto. And this speaks to things that we can do provincially and federally to help address sexual and reproductive health issues in Canada. And folks could go to that list, find an item like implementing $10 a day childcare, 
and then look to see if there's a group in their area or their province or jurisdiction that's advocating for that and get involved. And if there isn't, set up a group yourself. Um, but I think part of it is reaching out to pre-existing groups can be important because often we try to replicate activities and that's also a waste of effort and time. And then you have to spend years building up that experience when you could just jump on board with another $10 a day childcare campaign, for example. Uh, this is a longer answer because I think, you know, you're asking an academic who studies like political strategy and policy, um, you know, how do we go about doing it? But I think part of it is, you know, setting really reasonable targets, coming up with a strategy for achieving that target, being persistent and working with allies as well, and, and knowing when to start something new and knowing when to uh, join a pre-existing movement. And I love that you kind of brought that uh, to light because especially with uh, Roe v. Wade, we saw so many people being like, I'm starting a new organization, but they never look to see all the previous groundwork that amazing organizations like yourself have already done, like years worth of, of work that is invaluable. So um, I think that's very important. You know, there's only finite resources in the country, right? And we need to make sure that, you know, they're kind of being allocated to uh, groups that are that are existing and they've already got their foot in the door, right? Like they, they can't be so spread out. And I think then that dilutes the message mm-hmm. a little bit because um, even though the end goal is kind of the same, if you have so many different messages out there, I think the general public is going to get a little bit lost on who they should be supporting. So yes, very important, you know, have that um, centralized group that, you know, this is all the support here. And then you come as this more powerful uh, group to, to the government and say, you know, look at all these people behind us who, who want this. And just on top of what you're saying too, like duplicating efforts, you've got, you know, the administrative you know, b- burden of running an organization. We, mm-hmm. Every year we have a conversation amongst our team, which is, do we become a formal organization with a bank account and a board and a charter? And every year we think, no, 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 we are stripped for speed. We're focused exclusively on free prescription contraception. Mm-hmm. And so, no, we are a PayPal account that pays me back when I float things on my credit card. Um, <laughs> and so when we go in the red, we always send very vehement fundraising emails. It's like deals paying for the out of pocket if we don't cover yeah. <laughs> it. Um, and look, I'm fine doing that too. But at the same time, like, I'm, I'm in a lucky privileged position to do that. Um, but also, you know, it means, you know, just the planning and, and all that admin um, that can, that can be great if you have a new group, but yeah, again, there's a lot of groups that are doing advocacy and those other groups too, that the pre-existing groups, like you said, have experience and maybe they do need, they, they often do need extra energy and time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here in BC, we have a campaign that's fighting uh, period poverty, fighting for free menstrual products. So, you know, we don't do that advocacy. We, if a municipal council is like, Hey, we were interested in doing this. We just send them over to them and, and yeah. it's, they do a, fa- a fantastic job and they already have all the research in the background. Um, but what's really interesting is you can start to identify gaps. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, we were talking about this before the recording, but um, my research with the BC Humanist Association um, is very adjacent to the reproductive justice work. And, you know, we got, as is, as it is with the Access BC campaign work. And so there's an interesting story as to how I got involved with the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada and that was, um, I put out a snarky tweet about a birthright ad on a bus stop downtown. That was like, this is ridiculous. How can they make this advertisement? And we achieved a sufficiently high profile that a journalist reached out to us. and was like, well, are you doing a campaign on this? And we're like, I better do some research on crisis pregnancy centers. I know they're bad, but I don't know like how bad or why. Yes. So I did like 
a day of panicked research and uh, found the Abortion Rights Coalition Canada report on a crisis pregnancy centers. Mm-hmm. And then we got a, it was our only sort of bad news story. We came off as like, you know, feminists annoyed by bus ads. And we're like, no, no, no. It's the content of uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, I, I was talking to Joyce about the campaign and we thought, well, we should update this report. And because I, I have a research team with the BC Humanists and humanists care about reproductive justice, we combined our strengths to do an updated report of the Crisis Pregnancy Center survey that arced it in 2016. And so all these little things come to, into place. And so once you enter the space and, and understand who all the different actors are, you can start bringing people together in, in creative and uh, proactive ways and actually achieve really cool outcomes, which is, I think we have multiple reports coming out on crisis pregnancy centers, we've got lobbying efforts and sample policies. And it's all because we kind of, our worlds overlapped and we said yes, and uh, started you know, working with other partners and allies. Mm-hmm. That's amazing just how much of a team effort it's becoming reproductive justice as a movement as a whole. And there was something in your Access BC bio that we both found really interesting because we're both uh, very passionate about sexual education in schools. And you once taught grade nine health class, which emphasized the importance of effective sexual education for you. So we would love to hear while you were teaching what flaws you noticed at the time in the sexual education curriculum at the school. Yeah, so I, I moved to British to, to Victoria to teach. I was the debate coach and health teacher at a private school and uh, more debate coach first. And they have to, have to give you a sort of a teaching job. So I was teaching health class. And it was actually one of the cool things about the class was we were having the students debate and give speeches about health issues. And mm-hmm. I often find, you know, writing a reading something and doing a multiple choice exam is one thing. But if you have to give a presentation to your class about something, you get to know that very well. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was very interesting to have students you know, talk and communicate about you know, health issues and, and sexual and reproductive health issues as well within that. And um, so I, I tried to be as sex positive as possible, as inclusive as possible. But there aren't as many resources for teachers who want to do that. And. Yeah. Um, it was always interesting when you're saying things like to your students, like oh, when you, your partner or partners are having sex, you know, explore different forms of contraception. And, you know, kid puts up their hand like partners. Yes, mm-hmm. some people have more than one partner. And, you know, just being open and, and presenting that in a, a non-judgmental way can be a challenge. And especially as a new teacher, like I'm trained as a professional researcher, not as a health teacher. And so that was very challenging. And one of the, the big risks that I see is new teachers or inexperienced teachers or teachers who are horribly overworked, and that includes mm-hmm. a lot of teachers, uh, are looking for resources and might reach out to the most readily available resources. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes those are sex negative, abstinence only, sexual integrity, and heavy air quotes for those listening at home, uh, fear-based programs. And mm-hmm. so you know, we see these crisis pregnancy centers increasingly having education and outreach programs. So as a teacher, it's often beneficial to invite someone into your class to give the sort of the, the actual sex element of the sex ed class. Often, te- you know, students are more open and are more likely to ask those open questions when it's a visiting, you know, health uh, instructor as opposed to their teacher, the, who they see every day. So yeah. we'd bring in one of the representatives from Island Sexual Health, and she had a fantastic workshop. But if she wasn't available... And I wanted to bring someone else in and I, I wasn't knowledgeable enough to identify some of the, uh, uh, the red flags in the profile of uh, would-be sex educators. 
I could have accidentally invited a crisis pregnancy centers outreach person who mm-hmm. may teach the students exclusively about sexual integrity or abstinence only sex ed or present biased information, directing people away from abortions or away from contraception, et cetera. And so I think that's a really real risk. And some of the work I've been doing with the BC Humanists now is looking into these programs and we'll have some research um, to release in the future. And I'm sure we'll talk about it as well. Uh, but basically, it's exploring these kinds of programs that try to sneak their message into to secular schools. And mm-hmm. it's often deeply based in misogyny. Um, it often comes from a religious background. And it doesn't provide the whole picture or a comprehensive, judgment-free uh, sex ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, sexual education is... A huge gap, I think, in our in our education system across the, the whole country. And uh, Rachel and I actually had a conversation about this in one episode of our different experiences. You know, I went to public school; she went to a private school. And my education it wasn't great, but it was mm-hmm. better than yours, Rachel. And I kind of was joking that I learned more in a university philosophy class on how you should mm-hmm. be respected by your partner. <laughs> than I did in like grade 12 health class. Um, And I think that's very scary. The point that you made that, you know, you had the the knowledge to kind of do a little research of who you were bringing into this very vulnerable space with young students where someone else just might be like, I have to teach this. Like, I, 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 I'm nervous about this. I'm not comfortable talking about this. So I'm just going to get the first person who answers me. And very often it's these people who want to push their agendas of, um, you know, negative sexual experiences or uh, not being pro-abortion. And uh, you never know who you're inviting into this, this space with, minds that are really need to know this this stuff and there's a lot mm-hmm. to stay on top of too mm-hmm. right uh what's really interesting like just comparing you know sex ed experiences so i took my sex ed from uh canadian author w.o mitchell's son um mr mitchell in grade nine um mm-hmm. he was an excellent mm-hmm. sex educator um, i remember he woke up a student who drifted off with a by yeeting uh, a diaphragm <laughs> condom across the <laughs> Um, you know, but what was really interesting was when I did sex ed, um, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm young, mid thirties here. Um, the, the education was like the IUD was not brought up as a thing for young no. people. It was no, a, that was for people who had already had children. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. My mind, when people started like, like it was being promoted to younger girls who, you know, had not had children. I was just like, but that's wrong. Right. Like that was my initial thought because that's what I was taught, you know, you need to have children first, then you use that. Oh, I was going to say married women with children was, I think the message back that. This was, this is Alberta after all. Okay. Yes. um, Yeah, exactly. And so now, you know, IUDs are the number one go-to, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was going to say the implant is uh, is moving towards being the number one because you don't have the insertion uh, challenges, um, and they're really cool too. Like if people don't haven't used the implant, you can like poke it under your skin. Um, again, uh, don't take medical advice from me. I'm a political scientist, but um, I think they're fantastic as as an alternative. But you know, they only became you know available in British Columbia through approvals in like 2018, right? So that's still like very you know current. And so if you're teaching sex ed, you need to be on top of all the, re- the current research on these things, and that can be mm-hmm. that can be challenging because there's misinformation out there, um, and a lot of it's intentional by people who are trying to discourage uh, use of contraception mm-hmm. and and abortions. And so mm-hmm. that's a really high research burden upon a lot of um, teachers who probably don't have time to spend going down a rabbit hole 
on you know what is good research on this stuff and you also mentioned something um laura which i think was really good which was like teaching consent and that mm-hmm. was something that wasn't emphasized as heavily when i was in nope. school I, I tried to make it a centerpiece <laughs> of class but it's it's really good to see that emerging yes but the worry that i have is that this is not consistent across school boards and in schools so it's not no yeah, we're, yeah. we're doing a survey right now of schools in British Columbia. By we, I mean the, the, the BC Humanist Association to look into schools whose like sex ed curriculums may still be out of date or schools that are still teaching creationism or you know, presenting both sides of the issue when it comes to evolution. We found things like that still in public school um, you know, curricula, which is mind boggling. So there's a lot of work to be done. And that actually speaks to maybe your, your previous question on what we can do. And one, mm-hmm. one of the things I often tell people is, you know, find something you love doing and find out how that can help make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to just spend hours reading through school board bylaws and policies, that kind of research, absolutely need it. If you'd rather do art and create creative banners and posters and social media posts, we need that too. And, uh, but at the moment we do need researchers who want to dig into some of this stuff. So if you want to get involved. <laughs> I think my retirement job, I'm going to come back as a sex ed teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be my 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 after work job <laughs> I think you would be great at that but um one thing I would really love to see too uh and I don't remember any of this in my sex ed when I was in high school I did do a, a human sexuality course in university when I was in my third year of school which was only offered it was a full year course and it was only offered at one time primarily for psychology students So when really, when I took it, I'm like, everybody, this should be like a first year course that everybody has to take, because that's like, you know, we were even, we started at like basic anatomy and went all the way to like sexuality when you're elderly. And it was like, that's amazing. Like they really covered everything and it was so amazing, but I can't remember in that class specifically if they touched on this at all, but just even just touching on it a little bit when we're talking to young people about contraception and such is educating them on the side effects to expect mm-hmm. on the certain methods that you take so that they can decide what is a good option for them or not. Because for instance, when I was in uh, university, I was on the birth control pill. I uh, am prone to anxiety and depression sometimes, especially when I'm very stressed out. Then I go on a birth control pill and I'm like, why am I having panic attacks? And then later I'm like, I do some research and I'm like, oh, right. That would have been nice to know from my doctor, but she didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. And also just, you know, getting more educated on how the IUD works and certain, like certain um, symptoms that you can have afterwards, because you look on the online and they're like, oh, well, you might have this for a few months, but don't worry about it. But then you're just like, oh, well, I'm having this as well. Is that a symptom? And then the doctor's like, I don't know. So it would just be nice when you're at that vulnerable stage where, you know, you're not like when I think back to me at 19, I wasn't putting that much thought into those decisions that I was making about what method to go on. It would be nice to have been exposed to that, um, like that education, because when you're in the doctor's office at 18 years old, they're not really going to be forthright with it unless you ask. Mm -hmm. I was going to, you've actually highlighted another interesting way in which the cost serves as a barrier to contraception. And that's, it serves as a cost 
barrier to people changing contraception. So this is something that I didn't mention earlier, but we have to we have to highlight, which is as you mentioned, like the reason why we say all prescription contraception should be free is because people's bodies work differently, respond differently to different types, and they have different life situations or you know whatever is going on in their lives that some forms of contraception work better than others. So there's been some programs like there was one in Colorado where they gave out 43,000 copper IUDs uh, for mm -hmm. free and were great like abortion rates and teen pregnancy rates and unplanned pregnancy rates went down. Mm -hmm. That's only one form of contraception and as you mentioned like some contraception doesn't work for some people. But imagine, you know, you spend $350 in an IUD and you're having adverse side effects that don't work for you. You know, changing to another form of contraception is another cost, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't just have an IUD for, for 10 years because leaving it in would not work for you. And so suddenly now you have another cost and that's another barrier that might prevent someone from changing contraception, which might mean they have to then put up with side effects that are, you know, lowering their well-being and health. And that's mm -hmm. another situation which I can't imagine, you know, wanting to be in and, and wanting people to be in. You know, you should be able to find a contraception that works for you. And, uh, and that should be just as part of your experience. In addition to, as you, as you said, you know, using all the up-to-date information. And there was two other things I wanted to, to mention because mm -hmm. you're, you're spot on with, you know, some of the, the challenges around language. You know, trying to be sex positive is critical because these taboos and stigmas are a further barrier to people just talking about these subjects, let alone getting accurate information. And uh, I'll never forget when I was teaching uh, sex ed, you know, grade nine is an interesting time. Some of the kids could have probably given the classes themselves. And then some of the kids, you know, were, were not ready really to have even used the words that we were talking mm -hmm. about. And there was one young guy, he was giving a speech about, I can't remember the topic, but he had to use the word penis and he self-censored by beeping himself out. So he would say like, when you put the condom on the beep, I'm like, did you just beep yourself out? And then we had to have a conversation about using the real word for the real thing um, and you know, being ready to have that conversation. That, that one stuck with me. Um, but the third one, that just to build on what you were saying with education is educating practitioners as well. You know, so mm -hmm. doctors and nurses maybe aren't taking refresher classes on the current research on side effects of different forms of contraception or are not being trained in insertions of new forms of contraception. So the implant's a great example. Uh, if you have an implant in British Columbia, you can get implants, they're now available, but a lot of nurses and people at sexual health clinics and doctors aren't trained on how to insert mm -hmm. them or remove them because it's still very new. And so that's another barrier to exploring a sort of emerging form of contraception, which is what, you know, how do we even get it inserted or, or, um, or taken out? And while I'm talking about emerging forms of contraception, it's worth noting that our campaign mm -hmm. is pushing for free prescription contraception for any kind. And that includes mm -hmm. the emerging kinds for people with testes and people who can impregnate others. And okay. there's a lot of emerging research being done on um, these different forms of, you know, air quotes, male contraception. And uh, once those are available, they should be free as well. And yeah, absolutely. Like it's, also, it's, it's a problem for everyone, you know? And speeding up the approval process for some of them, because I know mm -hmm. uh, if you've seen some of the sort of somewhat tongue in cheek articles about, you know, they canceled a, one of the, uh, the male pill uh, research studies because men complained about adverse side effects. Side effects included things like bloating, mood changes, depression, <laughs> and everything you'd read on the side of a pill bottle um, mm -hmm. or you know, pack for your, your reproductive, you know, your, 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 your pill. So it was, you know, that was always an interesting example, but uh, yeah, I mean, we should be researching other forms of contraception because people's lives um, are different. Um, yes. My co-founder Devin wrote a fascinating piece on intimate partner violence and access to prescription contraception. And 
in a sense, it was a response to some of the complaints we get from people saying, well, why don't we just make the pill free? Why does it have to be expensive IUDs and things? Or why not just condoms? And the answer, of course, is because, you know, people have a diff different life experiences in different situations, and sometimes a condom is not going to work. So someone mm -hmm. who's experiencing intimate partner violence and their partner is, say, refusing to wear a condom um, or stealthing, for example, that person's going to want to use an IUD. Um, or, you know, if you are in a situation, and I, I couldn't imagine being in a situation, but it happens where, you know, you want to prevent yourself from having children, but your partner doesn't, and, you know, you can then have an IUD that's discreet or an implant, um, mm -hmm. or someone's messing with your pills. Um, that happens too, right? Um, so in, in other words, you know, having a full range of prescription contraception available gives people the option to choose what works for them based on what's happening in their lives. And that's critical and, and cost should never factor in. Right. It's there's enough decision making. There's enough points and, and information that you have to process about what contraception works for you. Cost shouldn't be one of them. I can't imagine adding that to the equation and just complicating things um, unnecessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think I know a single person who has stayed on one single form of contraception, like, and, and I'm going to target it on pills there because, um, you know, this is something their hormones in your body, we all have different levels of hormones. And so what works for this group of people might not work for this group of people. And it's almost trial and error with a lot of these situations. And, you know, I know people who've been on five different types of birth control pills, just trying to find one that that works for them. And then, you know, maybe none of them work for them. So that they got to go to an IUD and, you know, they might start it with a hormonal and then a, a year later, they're like switching to a copper. So these costs are just adding up. And then, you know, again, going back to that barrier of having to go back to a doctor and uh, Rachel, one of your experiences was uh, having your family doctor not being able to um, mm -hmm. insert an IUD. So she had to get referred to a gynecologist, which was then on a waiting list. And, and then you were months retired. before you actually had one. Yeah. And then that one that did do it retired. And then now I, you know, kind of when I was talking about the like symptoms and stuff, I can relate to it a bit. So then I've been trying to get to another gynecologist. So that took three months. And then the next appointment that I have with her was six months after that. And it's, um, it's very tricky because, and I, that's also just the limits of, I think our current healthcare system as well is a lot of these doctors are very overloaded. So you can't get in to see them that soon. But when you're in that situation, like, you know, sometimes I listen to experiences where I'm like, okay, like I'm kind of grateful for my situation. Like I can deal with it for six months but then there's other people where you're like that sounds completely unbearable like how like how are you dealing with that every single day it's and just... beyond unbearable dangerous right so exactly. if someone is in a situation where like some their partner is intimate partner violence is resulting in their partner you know manipulating their pills or mm -hmm. refusing to wear a condom suddenly that puts their health safety in serious jeopardy and yeah, yeah and I imagine like getting an appointment and not having a choice to where you have to take time off work and school. Yeah. If people heard noise in the background here, it's because I was reaching into my, uh, my little uh, education box to grab my contraceptive maraca. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks who are listening here, this is a, uh, a urine sample jar that is full of about like seven or eight different varieties of pills and two IUDs. And oh the reason I gosh. have all these, and it speaks exactly to what you were saying, Rachel, <laughs> which is um, we got really bored of all the stock photos that would come with our news stories because it was always yeah. the same three. 
And mm -hmm. so we put out a call for people to give us their old contraceptive pills so we could do some stock photos. Um, so if anyone's doing any advocacy out there needs photos, we got you covered. Uh, we have nice. hundreds of them with like different types of hands and different backgrounds. And um, but as a but people sent us tons of pills. Like I was getting a, a like a constant flood of mail from people because of exactly what you said. Like oh this pill doesn't work. I'm going to try Lolo or uh, mm -hmm. this one is doesn't work for me. Or turns out that. Uh, I had an adverse reaction or I didn't want to do the insertion or whatever. And so as a result, I quite literally have a box full of half used, unused and um, partially mm -hmm. used contraceptives next to my desk. And uh, apart amazing. from making uh, good Foley work and, and taking good photos, it's, it's good for education and outreach. And it, it speaks to the point you're making as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to um, also, that's really awesome. I love that, but I want to go back to what you were noting about just the danger of it too. Because there are also, especially with the IUD, those physical dangers to your own body. And going back to my experience, uh, I had the procedure and then the ultrasound afterwards that you're supposed to have within a month. I got it in early August. I did it in December. Thankfully, everything was fine. But that, that ultrasound is to check that it's in the right place so that something isn't wrong. And, you know, obviously, I feel like you would know most of the time, but if it like literally goes through your uterine wall, what would I have done in that situation? Or if it wasn't in the right place and I wasn't actually protected, then, you know, I could have had an unplanned pregnancy like three months in and been like, oh, that's wild. So yeah, there's just, it's a very tricky situation. I don't know the exact solution to that with just like the medical landscape in general, but it definitely needs to be improved. Absolutely. I mean, you could have, you know, accidental punctures with IUD insertions. I think the rate is very low, but it can still happen. Mm -hmm. And then there's a compounding factor, which is this sort of weird sexism in our health uh, care system where like women's pain, again, air quotes here, um, is not taken seriously. And so, and that's, you know, you have, you know, yeah, it could be endometriosis. It could be something else, but you know, these, the, the pain that people experience is often, you know, diminished or not given enough credence. And as a result, yeah, you could be waiting six months in, in pain and the IUD could be improperly placed. There could be something else going on. And I mean, I, that it's just mind boggling that that still happens, you know, and that people's experiences aren't being taken seriously by health practitioners and are being dismissed. And, and again, those people are disproportionately women and people with uteruses. And that is, that's a huge problem. That's again, a bigger problem. And I think these can be kind of daunting. And mm -hmm. again, it's part of the patriarchy and misogyny in our society that we have to start chipping away at bit by bit. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Now, uh, we've we've kind of brushed on this throughout the entire episode, but could you give us our, our like top three uh, things that average Canadians can do to improve access to contraception in their province? Good question. It's really <laughs> different in every province because the political of course. is different everywhere. Uh, we've been working to try and set up a campaign in Alberta for years and they keep getting derailed by chaotic Alberta politics mm. where suddenly there's something that's much more important and I mean, nothing is more important than people's health, but of course we only have so much energy and um, time as activists. So I would say the best thing to do would be to survey the political landscape and see like who's doing something that you, you think is important that could, you know, that needs support and help. Uh, so here in British Columbia, for example, folks can get involved in our work on free prescription contraception the, in Ontario and in Manitoba, our sister campaigns, and we'll have links to those I'm sure somewhere. Yep. Uh, yeah. People should get involved with those. Those groups tend to be, and our group included, a lot of very busy people who care about a lot of issues. And 
just showing up and saying, I can help with social media for an afternoon, or I'll set up a table, or I will do this one little thing, or donating if you don't have time and mm-hmm. you have funds, those help a ton. Uh, our campaign over the past five years has, we spent less than $18,000 and uh, we could operate on $0. Uh, just, it's nice to have a functioning website and buttons we can send people and run advertising. Uh, yes. But a lot of these campaigns are super grassroots. And so your donation does actually go a, a really long way. Um, our operating costs are like 300 bucks a month. And so like, that's all we need to take over, but we could trim those down to almost zero if we had to. Um, so that's one thing, like support groups that are doing work. Uh, as we said earlier, you can identify a thing that needs to be done that no one's doing and then work to do it, but do so in a strategic way, right? Um, find the best right. way to do something. One thing I've learned as someone who studies um, social st- strategy of social movements and, and activism is we often fall into repertoires of action. And these means things that we've done or, or our activist ancestors have done for years that we just do because it's what's done. So a petition or letter writing or sign waving or a rally or whatever. Sometimes these things work. We've had a lot of success with a letter writing campaign, but if your letter writing campaign is coming up against a, a wall, it's time to explore other innovative strategies and to abandon those kind of pet strategies that we, that we think work um, or that have worked in the past, but don't necessarily work in the future. But also don't, uh, don't look for something new and reinvent the wheel when mm-hmm. something works, works. Like we have a, a tradition of feminist letter writing in, in Canada uh, or caravans and, and, uh, and rallies. And there's no reason to reinvent the wheel if that's what's working. But if it's not working, uh, try something new, I think. And then I think part of it is, you know, like I said earlier, taking the bigger issue and breaking it down to smaller elements. We've had a lot of success having a laser focus on one issue. I know we do want to take a holistic aspect that is intersectional and recognizes you know, compounding barriers and challenges to reproductive and sexual health. But that's that can be very overwhelming and just hard to do. You know, if you're talking about... Uh, access to abortion services that involves transportation and stigma and taboo and education and funding and health and and not to mention like cultural differences between different communities it becomes very complicated so we've had a lot of success being laser focused on one small issue and i don't think it's it's not always for everybody if you have a bigger capacity yes please recognize the intersecting nature of these problems but if you want to set yourself up to do a small achievable goal then pick something that's small and achievable but will have an impact um chip away at that and then climb the ladder to to bigger change as you as you build. Yeah, and I kind of love that um, things can be as simple as setting up t- a table or running the social media account, because I think that gives everyone the opportunity to think about like, okay, what do I love to do? What am I good at doing? You know, um, how can I use those skills and and help someone else with them, right? You know, if, uh, okay, I'm if you're very good at, at finance and you work in the finance industry, then you could be like, Hey, do you need like a little help with your bookkeeping or, you know, making a budget or something like that? It's, it's using those skills that you already have and just being like, how can this help someone else? I'm laughing because bookkeeping is like, and, and being a treasurer is like the number one thing that most <laughs> need help with. Cause it's always like yeah. happy to run a booth and give out buttons, but treasury. Oh God, no. Um, God, someone counts the beans. No, thank you. <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's, it's always a headache too. So it, absolutely. And like you find out something you love and you're good at doing, you know, in some of my marine conservation work, people are like, I want to go out there and save whales. And I, and like, do you know how to sail? 
Do you have practical engineering experience? Are you a navigator? Can you swim? <laughs> yeah, get these, you know, so get some skills, you know, learn new things, and then apply what you love doing to making the world a better place. And that might just be designing buttons for a campaign, and it might be running a table, it might be crunching the numbers, it might just be baking muffins. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, an army travels on its stomach, as they say, and, and you know, when we're fighting against the patriarchy, having a muffin on hand can often help, um, or <laughs> a nice warm cup of tea, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. For oh, sure. I love that. I love that. There's just so much that, that people can do and, you know, we haven't even like thought of it yet. Right. So that, that's when all the minds come together and, and the great ideas come out of something that could be really impactful. I do want to say one other thing too, which is mm -hmm. build a small team. So when we yeah. have individuals reach out to us, trying to set up a campaign like ours in another province, we've had one or two people like, I want to do this. And it, it's not sustainable. Uh, I've been keeping the campaign here in BC running for, for five years now or more, and it's, it's a lot of time and I have a team and the team is, amazing, mm -hmm. and they are able to do things that I can't. So like right now I'm running for city council. I don't have time to update our social media every day. Um, we have our amazing campaign organizers who are writing weekly updates to our supporters and who are meeting with politicians. Um, our, our municipal, uh, coordinator I don't even hear from her until like a municipality endorses our policy and then it just happens and like mm -hmm. things are happening and you, you get a group of people together that are able to work together in, you know, on, on separate aspects of an issue. But having that team is really important because one person mm -hmm. can't do it alone and it seems hopeless, but as soon as you get that team together, ch chunks start falling into place. And that part of that might just be asking for help. Like, Hey, I'm really want to do advocacy, but I do not know how to do finance or I cannot build a website. And some people are just waiting to be asked. Like if you yeah. ask your design friends, like, oh, actually, yeah, I can make you a website in an afternoon. It wouldn't be a lot of work for me and it'd be kind of fun. And then suddenly mm -hmm. you have a website. And so asking for help and building um, and, you know, building a community is really important. And this is kind of why I mentioned earlier, we have a horizontal, horizontal organizing model, which is, you know, we try to use like shine theory to its fullest where we're lifting everybody up. So if someone needs to be nominated for a scholarship or they need a reference letter for their, you know, their grad school or whatever. Yes, absolutely. And we're always trying to train each other and, and get better. And I'll give you one really fun example, which is like our social media strategy was someone's fourth year project at Quest University. Like this team of women worked on their, their final year project and they reached out to us and were like, so we wrote a social media strategy for a campaign for free contraception. It turns out you exist. Do you want it? Like, I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. We've had a master's thesis written about our campaign, um, a bunch of final year university projects. So here's people who are combining their coursework with doing research that we can then use for our advocacy. So you can double up on, on your efforts and, and be efficient that way as well. And you know, as someone who's an academic, I also just love that aspect, that, that relationship between advocacy and research, where we're doing mm -hmm. good quality research and then using it to hit people about the head until they listen, um, using you know, good strategies and communication. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, All right. I have loved this conversation. I could talk Been to fun. you for probably like four more hours, if not longer. So um, I don't know. I think you feel the same way, Laura. So how yes. can our listeners find and follow you? And other than that, how can we support Access BC directly, but also you and your environmental work? Awesome. Yeah. So if folks are interested in learning just about myself, um, teal.ca, T-E-A-L-E.ca has a list of all the different projects I work on. And I mean, I didn't even talk about 
international work on uh, NGO strategy or fisheries or some of the other things I've done. So you're welcome to go there and learn about some of the other projects I've worked on. And all my social media is connected there, but I'm TLPB on Twitter. Feel free to tweet at me and uh, ask me questions and get involved and connected. Um, but then AccessBC is accessbc.org. And all of our information is there. We have our fact sheet, which has you know, great research on why this issue is important and why prescription contraception is fantastic and a great policy. You can meet some of our team there. And our team is fantastic and so diverse from all walks of life and different ages. And, um, and then we've got more information about some of the other projects we're working on and links to our sister campaigns in Ontario and Manitoba as well. And uh, I would say, please support those campaigns. So here in Access BC in British Columbia, we're close. Like I mm -hmm. said, we are Judge Judy tapping our watch impatiently for this policy to be implemented. And I think our sister campaigns need more support because they have an uphill battle, especially in Ontario, where you are. Every time I look at Ontario politics, it kind of makes my my hair curl a bit. Uh, so and it's bad. It's bad. We're yeah, putting our thumbs down right now. <laughs> Bird is the same way, right? So we have a lot of work to do in other provinces. So so show some love to our sister campaigns, and you know sometimes that might just be sharing stuff on social media, writing a letter. But other times it might be actively rolling up your sleeves and getting involved, and that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. But if you know free prescription contraception is not for you, there's so many other groups that are working on um, on reproductive justice issues. So if you visit reproductivejustice.ca, you can see our recent manifesto. This was a manifesto released by a host of organizations. I think I'm involved with at least three of them. <laughs> and uh, you can see kind of a list of some of the things we need to be working on to improve the situation in Canada. And, um, and there's some groups that are kind of signed on to that manifesto, including major unions across the country um, who are, are going to help do advocacy on some of those issues. And I think the main thing is to get involved and uh, yeah, get connected with us if you want to help out. Um, there's always work to be done, whether it's social media posts, fundraising, or just telling your friends and family about the importance of free prescription contraception and reproductive justice. Amazing. And Teal, I know you guys have like your awesome team um, with Access BC. We couldn't believe how large it was, you know. Um, we were reading the uh the Meet Us About Us page and we just kept scrolling. We're like, oh my gosh, look at look and like there's so many people here and what they all do and what they all bring to the table was absolutely incredible. Now for um, Manitoba and Ontario, if we have listeners who reach out to you and, and say like, Hey, I'm like, who do I contact? Um, you're a great resource for that. And if we have any listeners that are in provinces without a current organization, are you able to kind of connect them with maybe some other people who are interested? Yeah, absolutely. I have a list of folks from different provinces, and sometimes it's just one beleaguered health worker in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'd be happy to connect you with folks and act as sort of a, a network hub. And um, if you go to the website under um, across the top bar at accessbc.org, you can find a link to our allies. And there's more information about um, not just the two sister campaigns, but there's news stories about other efforts across the country. And so you can reach out to people. I know I'm supposed to do a Zoom coffee meeting with someone from Nova Scotia next month. And so a lot of times it's individuals working. So yeah, get in touch with us and we can help connect you within a broader network because you do need help and support to do that. Um, and, and your other question, I guess, was how to, to follow some of my ocean research. Uh, so folks who are interested, my organization is called Oceans Asia, um, oceansasia.org. You can find a lot of our work. Um, we do a lot of work on marine plastic pollution, um, looking at illegal fishing, and um, other sort of major marine conservation issues. And lately I've been really focusing on things like shark fins and sea cucumbers and looking at the overlap and relationship between organized crime and wildlife crime. And I'm, I'm the, the researcher part of that team. And uh, we have a little research team as well. 
and then we do investigative work and, and folks may have seen some of our investigative work on documentaries like Seaspiracy or Eli Roth's Finn. And um, I just had a documentary come out last month on Singapore National TV on my work on sea cucumbers, which is very exciting because so often these um, less well-known species are horribly neglected by, uh, by conservation governments and everybody. So I'm excited to draw some attention to a, a less well-known species that's being exploited and uh, fished illegally. That's so amazing. Um, please come back so that we can talk about this because honestly, like as we were doing research, we were just like, hmm, do we want to talk about free contraception or do we want to talk about ocean conservation? So I oh, think oh, we just found that there's two episodes now. <laughs> I'm more than, I, I can talk sea cucumbers and ocean conservation till the cows come home. I mean, there may be another episode on plastic pollution as well, quite frankly, because it's one of those mm -hmm. ones that it's a big scary issue but we're there's some progress to be made in that front as well amazing well thank you so much teal for yes, joining us you. today this has been an awesome conversation uh we can't wait to have you back and mm -hmm. this was just so insightful you taught us so much about what is happening in the political landscape and especially within bc so we wish you all the best on uh this policy coming into effect and then also on your upcoming campaign what day is election day now uh well, well yeah october 15th is the election day for municipal government here in bc and uh, yeah folks are in sanitship check out my platform on the website there too i, I think it's a good platform as well and a good vision for our, our local municipality and and thank you so much for having me on and for your advocacy on reproductive justice issues it's it's so inspiring to see more people stepping up especially in sort of the depression the depressing wave post roe v wade it's great to see more folks stepping up and doing advocacy on this uh, we had a list of all the podcasts in canada that did uh, sexual and reproductive health issues so we could reach out to them to do advocacy work um, and it was like three years old and it was tiny. And now that it's mm -hmm. expanded and we have such amazing podcasts where people are getting really important information and, and learning and education is the start to advocacy. And it's really good to have accessible forms uh, like this. And it's great to have some tea with you. Well, thank you so much for being here. Can't thank wait you. to have you back. Hello again, pod fam, and welcome back to the After Eight Tea Party. We hope you just enjoyed that amazing conversation with Dr. Teal. Uh, Rachel and I have just been um, speechless. My mind is blown. Mind blown. Yes, we have lots of feelings. I feel like feelings. I need to do more in life. He's involved in so many things, and we're just here like, we work in finance. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes record a podcast. Sometimes. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. Just doing the intro. I was just – we honestly only covered 5% of what uh, Teal actually does. and. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, like what a great advocate and supporter and um, initiator. Mm -hmm. so there are just many, so many things. So many incredible things that are absolutely necessary and um, just, just all around good person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to have him back for uh, our conservation series that we are now embarking on <laughs> now we're apparently doing a conservation yeah. series i guess we're doing that now because uh, i would love to talk to him about his knowledge of just ocean conservation because that is fascinating yes it is yeah and and super necessary um i know someone who just came back from holiday and they were in mexico mm -hmm. and um they were talking about how much the beaches have changed over 
like the past couple decades. Um, they used to be like very clear and not full of seaweed, but now mm-hmm. there are people at the resort who are strictly just in charge of raking up seaweed. So wow. um, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed because it's it's having huge effect on the world. But um, that that's not what we talked about just now in, in no. the episode. So Rachel, like, how awesome was that conversation? I learned that was amazing. so much. Same, honestly. And just, I really, really loved, uh, and he reiterated this a few times about how getting involved in organizations like this um, and how he prioritizes looking at a bigger issue and choosing areas of it to really become an expert on and get involved in because that just, it takes something that seems so daunting and, Mm -hmm. you know, the stigma is very negative and all of this and brings it down to a place where, you know, it, you can see what the next step or figure out what the next step you should take would be and take it like, you know, and start working on it. It just makes it a bit smaller and less daunting. And I think that makes it easier for, you know, the average Canadian to get involved. Yes, absolutely. And I think it really touches on things that we have talked about in other aspects of our lives, you know, um, dealing with work-life balance, relationships, friendships, work goals, and it's, it's making it so you have small wins, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. it's almost like having that little checklist of, okay, I have a huge task to accomplish, but what are the small things that I can do and I can feel like a change is happening because I feel so, so much in politics, especially um, things are slow to change and really daunting to take on. So having those small wins that just makes you feel like, okay, you know what? We're getting one step closer to the overall goal, which is important because mm-hmm. that then um, encourages one person to keep going forward. But then as other people see these changes and successful things happening, they want to then get on board that train. And now you have an even bigger force that is walking mm-hmm. towards that goal. Exactly. And I think too, it just really emphasizes the need for just experts in certain subject matter coming together for the broader issue because, you know, it's always great to be really knowledgeable about quite a lot of things, but in these types of circumstances, it's like you, there's so much work that needs to be done that it is um, more feasible to channel your energy to one specific branch, Mm -hmm. but then somebody over here is channeling their energy to one specific branch over here as well, but they interconnect. Yes. So then you're both working towards that same goal, that same broader goal that we uh, that is just reproductive justice. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that was a great point that Teal made was, you know, we're not trying to take on everything, right? Like we are picking one thing to tackle mm-hmm. on because there are, all are, are already – other great organizations have also chose their one thing, which is different. So that is how you get this more targeted approach of of making it successful and not becoming just this um, kind of uh, sprung, like uh, really sprawled out organization where you're trying to take on too much, right? Because we, we mm-hmm. talked about resources being finite and people are finite. So I love that um, 
they have kind of made that conscious choice, you know, and, and Teal said, you know, we could very easily branch into these other different issues, but then that's going to take away from the main one that we're trying to work on. And mm-hmm. also um, something we've seen a lot is people trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, yeah. there's no need to do that. You already have the frameworks and, and people who have got the research behind it, got the groundwork and already have those contacts. And I think it's more valuable for people who want to start something is to get involved, mm-hmm. right? like bring your skills to that group. Because then, like I said before, that is the power that is building mm-hmm. and people are going to get so much further ahead. And um, I, I can really imagine a lot of this stuff is is very mentally and emotionally exhausting. Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of fascinating, like, like contraception, that's something that majority of people can get behind, right? But then as you take on a bigger piece of the pie and you're going to abortion, now you have more naysayers. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to kind of have that um, resource of people behind you where it's kind of like a tag team, right? Like, okay, I'm yeah. going to fight this end. Okay, now it's your turn, right? And that just really allows people to focus in and not get so strung out. Um, mm-hmm. And and then they can rely on each other a little bit more. Because I love what Teal said, you know, um, he's been busy working on his election campaign, but, you know, still doing a lot of stuff with uh, Access BC. And then all of a sudden an email pops up and say, hey, we got another supporter, right? Mm-hmm. So I love that there's all this work going on in the background. And, and that's what's making it, it successful. Absolutely. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm speechless. Yeah. That was so good. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. We're definitely There's a lot have going on that. in my head. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. could just talk to him for hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, it really gave me a new perspective of thinking like, okay, well, what, what can I bring to the table? Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, yes, one thing I can do is, you know, do a, probably a small financial donation, but then you know, is there anything going on around me? You know, I live in a very populated area, so I'm sure there actually is. And if I just inquired about it, you know, I could probably volunteer a day of my time or a couple hours mm-hmm. and, and just give these awesome folks a hand. Exactly. So I hope or, our listeners are know. kind of thinking about that too, you know, um, mm-hmm. look into it and, you know, reach out to Teal and his his team there because they can definitely set you up with someone. Definitely. And also too, just even if you don't have the time to volunteer, the letter campaigns, like writing to your MP or, you know, we have an episode coming up about this, but looking into uh, what can be done about the uh, anti-abortion flyers Mm -hmm. in your city and such. There's just so much that you can do to be a part of this movement and community. Yes. So ask questions, get involved, and we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Yes. You want to close us out? We'd love to. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And uh, if you would like to speak to us about this episode or any episodes that have come before, you can email us. Our email is teawithlaurarachel at gmail.com. So, you know, send us any questions that you have from this episode and, you know, we can help get those answered for you. And, you know, we just love to hear from you. So please reach out. 
Yeah. And especially if you have um, another avenue within this abortion series that we're doing that we haven't explored yet, you know, let us know because we will mm-hmm. find the people. We are in the network now. So yes, we, are. we will find the answers for you. Yes. Love it. All right. That's all, right. all for me. That's all for me too. Live like tea. Live like tea.